turn together to the book of Genesis, chapter 9 this week. We will be looking at the final episode around the book of Noah, as it were, the the story of Noah and the flood and its aftermath. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. Genesis, chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. That is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, 
laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word. That you would teach us more clearly who you are. That you would teach us of the great things that you have done. But most of all, O Lord, we ask that you would teach us to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust in your work, O God. Through your Son. This we ask in the name above all names. The name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have come, as I said, to the last segment in the story of Noah. A very famous story that we all know well. And this is, we might consider, the happy part of the story. It is the the coming out of the ark and the refilling of the earth and hearing again from God and being in close relationship with Him. This is Noah's, the whole world's, fresh start, isn't it? Well, perhaps after a fashion. Because I think when we think of a fresh start, don't we often think that the slate is blank? That somehow, nothing in the past matters at all. We may do this at times if we move to a new city. We have an opportunity, we think to ourselves, to remake ourselves. Oh, now that I've moved to this city, and now that I'm in this new church, I'm going to be more outgoing than I ever have been. Or for others of us, we may say, I'm going to be a bit quieter than I usually am. I'm sure I can do this. I can I can change a bit who I am, remake myself, and have a fresh start. What happens, though? A week goes by, and two weeks go by, and your new friends begin to know who you are. You're just like the person your old friends knew. Because even though you may have a fresh start, you are who you are. The past matters. Your relationships matter. History matters. That's what we see here with Noah. The world here is not brand new, fresh like it was in Genesis 1. It is remade, but the past matters. And most significantly, we will see this morning, what matters about the past is the relationship that God has with His people is still there. It is still strong. The Lord still seeks after His people. And the Lord is still in control of the universe. 
This is no brave new world that Noah must discover and strike out on his own. No, God tells Noah that he will be with him at all times. And we see that here in this great passage about the covenant of God. This is perhaps the first passage in all of Scripture where the covenant of God is explicitly set forth. We saw God's covenantal relationship in Genesis 3, but here God specifically lays out the fact that He is in covenant with His people. And so what we see here this morning are three things. First, we see the maker of the covenant. That is God Himself. Second, we see the covenant the very relationship that God has fashioned with His people. And then thirdly and lastly, we see our need for this covenant of God. Well, let's begin then by looking at the maker of the covenant, that is God Himself. Chapter 9 begins, as Genesis so often does, with God. It is God who comes and blesses Noah and his sons. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird and everything that creeps and all the fish, anything you can think of, you are in control of and rule over, Noah. And what we see here is there is a new world, but there is not a new world order. Do you notice that? If you put your finger in Genesis 9 and you turn some pages back to Genesis 1, you will see verses 26 through 29 sound very familiar to these verses. God is once again giving out a creation mandate. We are starting over, but you see the reason we are starting over is not because of God and his order. Now, this seems very simple, but I promise you, it strikes at the heart of what people in your neighborhood and at your workplace believe. They believe what is wrong with the world are all these restrictive things that people who believe in God have set up. That if we could only be freed from all this order, only be freed from all these shackles, be freed to be me, everything would be perfect. And we see here the problem with the world is not God. It is not His commands to His people. It is not His organization of the universe. The problem with the world, as we see from the flood, is man and his rebellion and sin. And so God begins again, but it is a re-beginning. It is a recreation in which He tells Noah to do exactly what He told Adam to do. It's remarkable. The other thing that's remarkable is that God begins here with a blessing. Now, we take this, I think, for granted because we think of Noah and his faithfulness and his great trust in the Lord and how he brought his family into the ark. But think about the context here. God has just destroyed the earth for the unbelievable wickedness of sin that was found in it. And now God begins this new world not with chastisement, not with warnings, not with threatenings to Noah, but with a blessing. How gracious is our God? 
I dare say, if I were in charge of the world, or if you were in charge of the world, the very first thing that would have come out of our mouths to Noah would have been, now Noah, you better watch it. There was a big mess here before I had to clean up this whole world, and I don't want it to get to be a mess again. So you watch what you do, you listen to what I say, and if you are good, then maybe, maybe I won't punish you, and good things will happen. Right? If we're honest with ourselves, that's often how we parent. I know I do. But God doesn't begin that way. He begins with a word of blessing to Noah, encouraging him, telling him to be fruitful, telling him to subdue the earth again, and even expanding that creation mandate, being yet more gracious by saying that I have accounted for the fall, Noah. Now the creation, all of the animals, all of the birds, all of the fish, they will actually fear you because I have put the fear of you in them. God is the creator of all things. The other thing that we see here about the maker of the covenant is that he is the owner of life. Because after he describes to Noah the creation mandate, he says in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now this is a verse that is cause for great rejoicing. This is the foundation of the steak dinner. This is the foundation of the meatloaf and the roast chicken and the roast duck and the ham. I say this on purpose. It's a little bit humorous, but as soon as I said those things, some of you started to not tear up, but drool up a little. And you think about all of these wonderful foods and tastes and what... Think of the great blessing that God has given to us in this. And He didn't need to, but He did. And He did this because He is the owner of all of life. All of life is in His hands to do as He will. And He gives man animals for food, I think for two reasons. First, to show that He is in control, and secondly, to show that there is a fundamental, foundational, bright-line difference between people and animals. The last quarter century has been a flurry of activity trying to erase that bright line. Right? Well... It doesn't really matter if that older woman dies. We saved four rabbits. Well, you know, so if we can't conquer cancer and heart disease, it's okay. There'll be five or six hamsters left alive. You see? Treating dogs and cats like people. I don't mean affectionately. I mean like they have rights. That they can sue people. Our world has become an insanity in this way. And what God has said is, I am the creator, I am in control of life, and there is a difference between man who is made in my image and everything else. And we must never forget that. We must never forget that because, number one, it gives dignity and honor to who we are, and number two, it requires us to give dignity and honor to every single person who walks the earth. No matter how difficult they are, how annoying they are, how blasphemous they are. They are made in the image of God, and that makes them different from the rest of creation. 
God owns all of life, and he says you may eat of all of these things, but he does give one provision. He says you will not eat the blood. And he gives a reason. He says, for in the blood is life. And God is setting forth a principle here that he is the owner of life, and that if blood is life, he controls it, and no one else can have it. He's laying down here the beginnings of a sacrificial system that Israel will see in Leviticus 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And he's laid it down as a principle for you and for me. Because you see, it is in the blood of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that life is found. This is something also that the world hates. They love the the somewhat moderate teachings of Jesus, but they hate the bloody religion of the cross. And without the bloody religion of the cross, there is no life. Life is in the blood. Those who were pagans understood this. It was a common ritual to drink the blood of animals, to somehow think that would give them magical powers and control. And God says, this is not true. I am the one who gives life. This is the one who makes the covenant. He is in control of life. And law of life is sacred to him. It's why here in verse 6, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is, of course, the foundation of the principle of capital punishment. But you notice that the value of life is the reason for capital punishment. It is not because we need to get rid of these wicked people. It is not because it will prevent someone from committing a crime again. It is not because it's more efficient. It is because man made in the image of God is so valuable that if someone takes the life of man, his life is forfeit. This verse should not be a theoretical, practical, governmental argument for you about public policy. This verse should make our nation shudder as the abortion mills hum. As million upon million of innocent lives are killed for convenience sake. This is the value of life according to God. Now Genesis 9 takes the time to describe who God is, that He is the owner of life, that He is the creator of all things, because only in understanding that can we understand the greatness of His covenant with us. It is this God who we have described, who in verse 8 says to Noah, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. We understand a bit about this covenant. First we see its nature, and then we see its promise. What is the nature of this covenant that God makes? Well, the very first thing that we see is that it is unilateral. Unilateral. What does that mean? Well, unilateral just simply means one-sided. There is only one side that is involved in the making of this covenant. 
And this makes sense given the story that we have seen. For after all, who asked God to save Noah? Who told God which should be in the ark? Who told God when it should rain or how long it should rain? No one. It is God who speaks. It is God who is in control. It is God who takes the initiative. And we see that right here from the very beginning. Behold, I do this, God says. The language in verse 8 is identical to the language in chapter 6, verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood. The same one who had control over the earth to bring a flood now has control to make a covenant with Noah. That's why it is called, you'll see, my covenant. Not a good covenant. Not the Noah covenant. It is God's covenant. God makes this. He sets the terms. In our relationship with God, we have to understand, first and foremost, that the Lord is the one who sets the parameters. This is no different today than it was in Noah's day. For after all, our Savior said this in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Do you see that? Jesus not only chose His disciples and chose us, He appointed what we should do, appointed our fruit, chose how our fruit should maintain, should bear on, and chose that it should abide, and chose that it should be a part of our relationship with the Lord. Jesus does all of that. Now, we may think at times that we are in charge and we are the ones who do this. This often comes... I think in times of prayer, when we are desperate or when we are disturbed, we will pray to the Lord, Lord, if you only do this for me, then I will do that for you. Or Lord, I've done so much for you. I pray regularly. I read my Bible. I visit people. Lord, please answer my prayer for all that I've done. But you see, the Bible doesn't speak that way. We're not in control. It is God who makes the covenant. It is God who sets the relationship. That is the definition of grace. Unmerited favor. An unmerited, a demerited, we might even better say, relationship with God. This covenant is unilateral. We also see that it is unconditional. Another U word. It is unconditional. Notice the language here that God uses with Noah. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And then he says, I'll make this covenant with everyone, all flesh, throughout all of the earth. Do you notice something that's missing? God doesn't ask Noah to do anything. He doesn't say, I establish my covenant with you, and what I will do is promise not to destroy the earth again. And what you will do is pray four times daily, and you will give 10% of your income, and you will read the Bible, and you will do this, and you will do that. 
Do you notice that? All of the works that we do are built on the foundation of the covenant. We do not work to be in relationship with God. It is completely unconditional here. Everything that we are, everything that we do flows from our relationship with God. It does not bring us into a relationship with God. This is contrary to every other religion, philosophy, in the history of the world. Every other religion says, do and God will love you. Only the truth of the Bible, only Christianity says, God loves you, therefore you will do. It is the foundational, distinguishing principle. The covenant is unilateral. The covenant is unconditional. The covenant is also everlasting. If we were to use another U word, we might say it is unending. Do you see this? God says, I will establish my covenant with you and I will never again, in verse 11, cut off all flesh by the waters of the flood. This is a covenant for all future generations, verse 12. This is a covenant that lasts forever. What a mercy to us. Because after all, we're used to broken promises, aren't we? We're used to others making promises that don't last forever. You know what this is like, don't you? Sure you do. Have any of you ever bought anything? A car, a washing machine, a computer, a phone, right? They all come with a warranty, right? And you know exactly how long it'll be until it breaks. It'll break the week after the warranty runs out. And then you will call up and say, you know, I bought, I spent a lot of money on this computer. Well, when did you buy it, sir? Well, I bought it 367 days ago. Well, I'm sorry, sir. We only warranty for one year. You're out of luck. But, but wait a minute. When I bought it, I assumed that you promised that it would work and it wouldn't just break of its own accord. Well, sir, we don't make those kinds of promises. One year. This is the kind of promise that we are used to. But God, gives us a promise that goes beyond this. It is a promise that goes for all future generations. It is a promise that we can rely upon. When we trust the Lord in His covenant, God will never say, I'm sorry, ma'am. Your faith in me was only good for 23 years. And you're on year 24. I guess you're on your own now. You see, the Lord is with us at all times. He makes this kind of abiding, permanent covenant. The covenant is unilateral. The covenant is unconditional. The covenant is unending. But it is also universal. Do you see this here? God makes this covenant not just with Noah, but with all flesh. It's about as expansive as it gets. It's not just all people. This is a covenant that God actually makes with Fido and Felix and Flipper and the giraffes and the hippos and every living thing on earth. So what does that mean? Does that mean we should look at this and say all people are equal, all animals are equal, and, and God is working a salvific work for everyone? No. 
This is a good principle of how God works in the world. God has a special, saving, covenantal love for those who believe in Jesus Christ. But the blessing is not contained with that. God pours out such a blessing on His people that it overflows to the all of the world. It's what we call common grace. God is showing grace here to Noah because Noah believed God and acted upon it. And because of that, the whole world was saved, figuratively speaking. The animals lived. The trees grew. The world was blessed because of the covenant that God had with Noah. And because of that, God has an expansive covenant with all of creation. What a mercy God shows to His creation. This is the nature of the covenant. This is what it is like. But we cannot just describe it. We must experience the covenant. Because the covenant is not just a contract. It is also a relationship. And so there is a promise that is found here in this covenant. And it begins right at the very first expression of it in verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. Behold, God says, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now this word here for establish is not the normal word for covenant. We're going to learn a lot about that in weeks to come when we get to Abraham. But suffice it to say, the ordinary word for to make a covenant is not being used here. The word that is being used here is a word that means to establish, to make firm, to re-establish, we might even say. God is confirming something that already exists. He already has a relationship with Noah. He already is in covenant with his people. But now he is telling Noah that it is firm and steady. The covenant, if you'll forgive the analogy, was wobbling. Not because of anything God had done, but because of the rebellion of man. Man had decided he didn't want a relationship with God. He didn't want to be in covenant with God. He didn't want the restrictions of the love of God. And so man shook his fist at the heavens. And the covenant almost failed. God had to destroy the whole world except for eight. But God is so powerful that even though Such punishment had been poured out. Such wrath had been seen. Such destruction was everywhere. God was able to reestablish and make firm His covenant with His people. This is not just an historical figure. This is what God can do in your life. Is your life teetering? Are your relationships not what they should be? Is your prayer life weak? Are you reluctant to read the scriptures? Are you reluctant to be alone with God? Are you reluctant to tell others of the Lord? God can establish, re-establish His relationship with you today. Not tomorrow. Not two weeks from Thursday. Today. 
God establishes His relationship with Noah. He confirms it. And the language, again, is clear. He says here in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters. The language there is one of a continuing verb. He continues to strengthen it. He continues to reestablish it. And we can know that there will never be a time when we are cut off from God. The promise of the covenant is the promise of a relationship. And that brings us a very great and practical hope. Put yourselves once again in the shoes of Noah. You get out of the ark. And as you are counting sheep or giraffes or goats, a drizzle hits your ear. You look up and a drop hits your nose. And you see clouds move in. What are you going to be tempted to do? I would be tempted to run and hide in fear. Here it comes again. The last time, the only time rain has come down, the whole world was destroyed. Some of you have lived through something like that. A horrific fire. A great storm. A hurricane. It's not just children that go and hide when they have flashbacks. Right? Some of you have served in our military and perhaps wake up with sweats at night thinking that you're stuck in a cave or you're in a prisoner of war camp. This is real. And God knows that we have these kinds of fears. These kinds of fears that we don't know if we're good enough. We don't know if we can make it. We don't know if God's going to punish us. And God says, I will give you hope by my covenant. Never again will the world be destroyed this way. You can trust me, God says, because I am in charge. This is God's covenant. Thirdly and finally, we see not only the maker of the covenant and the covenant itself, but we see the need that we have for the covenant. As a reminder and as a sustainer. First we see the reminder... Now, God not only graciously gives Noah the blessings of his relationships, he also gives him a great assurance. He says, this is the sign, in verse 12, of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You see, God does not want you to be afraid. He wants you to trust Him. And so even today, when we see a rainbow in the sky, children delight. Because they know what? That the rain is over. And that the sun is coming out again. And that joy is present. Everybody loves rainbows, right? And God has put that there and put that in our hearts that we might know that we need Him and He will protect us. Have you ever wondered why it's called a rainbow? Well, part of it is, I think, the shape. But when God says, I put my bow in the clouds, it's the same word that we use for something else that looks like a bow. 
a bow and arrow. God is saying to us, I have put up my weapons of war. I have taken them away and set them in the clouds that you might see that hostility is ended. That you might know and have hope in what I have done. And then he does something that's extremely interesting. We might think that he puts this rainbow in the clouds that we might remember, oh yeah, no more floods. But do you see what God says? He says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign. And verse 15, and I will remember my covenant. In verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember. Does that strike you as odd? That God is the one doing the remembering? But you see, that's even more assurance to us because God wants us to remember His grace. God wants us to know His assurance of mercy. God wants us to know that He remembers us. He still does this for us. There's not just a bow in the clouds. There's a table spread forth that we might partake of the Lord's Supper. There are the waters of baptism that we might know that God has made His covenant with us and that He remembers us. Lastly, we see our need from the covenant in this odd story here at the end. Some of you were wondering if and how I was going to get to that. If we were writing a movie, the story would end at verse 17, right? What better ending than the happy rainbow in the clouds? It's perfect. Yet Moses, by inspiration of the Spirit, turns to this odd story. Why? I think briefly here it's to remind us that we need the covenantal relationship with God to go on. You see, we are not left here with a perfect Noah. We're reminded that Noah, like every other giant of the Bible, David, Abraham, Adam, All were sinners. There's only one who has escaped sin. Only one who was never tainted by sin. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of these kinds of stories. Even starting over afresh, Noah brings sin back into the world because it was with him when he was in the ark. It also reminds us that no one is beyond God's grace. Because you see, all the families of the world were broken down to these three men. Shem, Japheth, and Canaan. And here it breaks down very neatly. Shem is the father of the Israelites. He's the ancestor of Abraham. Japheth is the father of the Gentiles. You and me. And Canaan, Ham and Canaan, they're the fathers of the enemies of God. They're the people that we don't like. They're the people that we should destroy. They're the people who are cursed. They're the people that have no hope ever. Until we realize that our Savior had Canaanite blood in him. Do you remember a woman named Rahab? The harlot? You see, this story tells us that no one is ever beyond the reach of the grace of God. Even those who are cursed by their actions can find rest. 
They don't find rest with Noah, he who is named rest. Noah shows us here he cannot give us rest. His father was wrong. There is only one who can give rest. The only one who can give rest is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has never failed. He is the only one who has perfectly kept the covenant. He is the only one who is worthy. Do you trust Him now? Is He enough for you? Does He bring you closer to the Lord? Does He show you and remind you that His covenant will never fail? This is the one who gives us rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You this morning that You have given us rest through the Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask that You would show us Your great rainbow in our lives. That You will never leave us nor forsake us. And that we can ever trust You. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.